Hey everyone, my name's Dal. I'm really excited to welcome you to the Up Your Street podcast. If you haven't tuned into the show before, we're all about giving everyday legends the opportunity to share their incredible stories, passions and lives. Now that you know what we're all about here, let's get started. This week on the show, we have best-selling author and host of the Terratrax podcast, Jack Pierce. Jack's currently based in Richmond, Virginia in the USA and is 32 years old. On today's show, we have a chat about Jack's extremely busy lifestyle. He writes novels, hosts and produces his very own podcast, as well as getting into his childhood and what drew him into the horror genre. Really happy to have Jack on the show this week and I can't wait for you to hear our chat. Hey Jack, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's really great to have you on. Thanks for sticking around and make sure our, our time difference works as well. Yeah, th- thanks for having me on, man. No worries. Uh, so you're a best-selling author and also host of the the Terror Tracks podcast. It's it's a real honour to have someone on the show who's achieved so much that you have. Um, we'll have a chat about what's life been like so far as a best-selling author. It's been uh, chaotic. I mean, really, um, it's really my fault in a lot of ways because, you know, before, you know, before I was a best-selling author, I had a much easier life, I think. And, you know, I feel like being a best-selling author is kind of, what would you call it? Overrated in a way. <laughs> uh, I mean, you have the success, you have the bragging rights, but at the same time you have the, you know, all of the nonsense that comes with it, which we can get into if you want. But the point is, you know, all the business nonsense, but, you know, it just sometimes I don't really feel like a different guy at this point. You know, like I know some people go through this transformation where, you know, they're a best-selling author, you know, even with me with the, you know, eight of my 11, you know, books that came out going to number one on the horror charts, I still don't feel like a different guy at all. I feel like, you know, this is what I do and, you know, that's it, you know, just, I don't feel any different. I don't feel that, you know, super ego come on. You know what I mean? Like, you know, would you would expect I never got like I kind of skipped past that, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's a credit to you as well. I think a lot of people would get the success that you have. I mean, eight, eight best-selling books is an incredible achievement and there'd be a lot of other people that let that go straight to their heads. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it's because I was a YouTuber for so long before that, that I dealt with a lot of people that had those big egos and, you know, thought they were a lot more important than they really were. And I'm not trying to be negative or mean to those people. But, you know, you like you said, some people let it go to their head. And I just never, you know, felt that way. And I kind of didn't like how people would look down the nose at people, you know, that they thought were smaller, or, you know, not beneficial to them. And I think that, you know, that'll eat you alive if you, you know, let yourself become, you know, obsessed with that sort of, you know, chasing the dragon is what they call it. You know, that's uh, one way to call it is, you know, you get like some success. So you chase that one thing, hoping to, you know, get another success off of it. And I mean, I've seen so many people that, you know, were decent people, or at least I thought were decent, you know, when they first, you know, met them. And then, you know, once they got a little bit of power, they just, you know, turned into terrible people. And that is kind of, I guess I absorbed that lesson and, you know, made sure that I didn't go down that path. And, you know, a lot of people really, you know, get lost in it. Like, you know, they get into drugs or they get into, you know, doing really making poor decisions or whatever with the new money that comes in or the, um, you know, the new status and the attention and all that. But 
I think a big difference is with an author, you're not really, you know, you would think you would have like, you know, fans lined up outside of the building to, you know, talk to you and like paparazzi and stuff, but it really isn't. I mean, it's like, you know, nothing really changed in real life or online really, because I was, you know, for the most part, I never used social media, you know, not, not during my author thing. I left social media entirely when I became one, which I know is kind of counterproductive, but I just don't like social media in general. So I try to not, you know, use it because I feel like, and I know I'm rambling at this point, <laughs> You're right. but I feel like it kind of becomes a measuring stick where you look at, you know, the amount of followers you have or the amount of this, there, or the other is, you know, some type of metric for if you're really successful as a person, you know, I've, I'm a best-selling author and I barely have any followers on Twitter or my, you know, mine's is my main one. And I have less than a thousand over there you know, and I have maybe two or three on two or three total on Instagram, but, you know, I, I focused and got my success in one particular Avenue that was not social media. Cause you know, I read this article a while back and I need to link it to people cause I bring it up in almost every show I go on. And even my own, there was this boxer and I forgot who it was. It wasn't George Foreman or Mike Tyson, but it was some famous boxer that had like a, I think it was a million and a half, you know, followers on Twitter. And he wrote a book about boxing. So it's a boxer with a boxing Twitter account that wrote a book about boxing. And he, you know, put the Twitter link out there to basically do a study to see how many sales he got off of his 1.5 million followers. And the results were like 300 copies sold total from like that Twitter campaign he did. And that kind of pushed me off. I was like, you know what? I just don't care about Twitter. I don't care about social media anymore because Twitter doesn't sell books. Amazon does. Yeah. It sounds like you've really found the niche and the, the avenue that works for yourself. Like you said, um, you know, I think it's a real credit to you that you've been able to find your way outside of, you know, we're so driven by social media these days. It's, it's really what a lot of people's lives are centered around. And I think it would have been really easy for you to fall down into the metrics and the numbers, you know, how many followers do I have? You know, are, are my videos getting a lot of views? Am I getting a lot of listens? You know, so I think it's a real credit to you that, that you haven't fallen down that path. It sounds like you've stayed really humble. I mean, yeah, you stay, you do worry about the numbers, of course, you know, that's always going to be something in the back of your head, you know, that you want growth, but at the same time, it's like, I guess it's because with the YouTube where a lot of them, you know, have, you know, people throwing themselves at them constantly, you know, for collaborations or, you know, whatever attention that they give them, it's, they, they treat them like, you know, TV or movie stars, but a book guy, I mean, what, how can you really, you know, collaborate on a book? You know what I mean? Like a yeah. book is you know, <laughs> kind of a solo thing. You know I mean? You can do your little compilation where everyone throws their stories together, like the chicken soup series. I think that's what it's called. Those chicken soup for the soul or whatever it's called books. You know, you can do something like that, but you know, I don't do that. And you know, I wouldn't be against doing one sh sort of short horror collection if people wanted to come together for like one, a one-time thing. But, you know, it's just, it's not, there's not really as much of a ladder to climb in the publishing industry because it's so hard to get out there to begin with. That yeah. it's like, it's not like, you know, someone could upload a video or I'm not discrediting anyone that does it. Cause I was a YouTuber for 10 years, but you know, it's a lot different than, you know, uploading just a random cat video and getting a novel published and going through all of the headache that you have to do to do that. And you know, I've done it 10 times like an idiot and I need to stop doing it at some point. <laughs> That's when I started the podcast. I was like, you know, I'm so sick of doing this. I'm just <laughs> so sick of writing this stuff. 
you know, because it's really not as much money as you think it is. You know, you get the prestige of, you know, the award winnings and all that stuff, but there's really, you know, after the ad costs and the publishing costs and the publisher's cut and all the business back end of it, you really don't make much money. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to hear you say, cause I think from what I've gathered that, uh, you know, the barrier to entry into publishing a text is, is much higher than chucking a video up on YouTube. And I, I completely yeah. agree. Um, do you want to have a chat about what that process involves? You know, for someone who me personally, I've never really thought about publishing a book ever, um, as I'm sure a lot of people haven't. Do you want to have a chat about what it's like sort of start to finish to get that process completed? I was lucky to basically buy into a publishing company that just started that um, it w- I didn't go self-publishing because I didn't, you know, have the experience or whatever. I didn't want to do self-publish because I just felt like that was um, too random. I, wa- I wanted something more organized. So what happened was I found a publishing company as a small press that, you know, I owned a part of to begin with. There was something else before that, but it kind of morphed into a publishing house, which was called Project Phoenix, and it had me and a couple of partners in it. And, you know, that's how I got kind of got published was I was already owning part of that company. But, you know, for the average person that's trying to get traditionally published, you have to go through, you know, you have to go and query what they call query editor, not, ed- not editors, agents. Like you just get these people that you have to basically wow an agent and then the agent has to go wow a publisher and then the publisher has to, you know, sign you to a deal or whatever. And, you know, you work with their editor, their cover designer, they probably change your title, probably change stuff in your book, you know, and then they leave all the marketing on you pretty much. So, I mean, there's really, I've never seen a benefit of going traditional publish because it just seems like too much work for no return on investment. You really don't get anything from a publisher that is worth, you know, the headache of getting with one. You know, I think that you're better off rather going the self-published route, which you make more money on, but you know, you're the one, I mean, you're the one doing all the marketing anywhere. The publisher is not going to do it for you. And, you know, they're not going to help you at all unless you're some big name that they will, you know, manage and know they'll make a lot of money on you. But these new people, you know, they just, you know, they'll sign you, I guess. And, you know, they'll basically be like, all right, we'll go make us money and we won't give you barely anything on this book. And, you know, they just, that's how they do it. Cause all of these, you know, pub- big publishing things, I think they're a big scam at this point. Cause it used to be the only way to get into the author market was really to go through a publisher. I mean, cause if you think about it, publishers are basically your record deal people. They're you know, you have the record deals back in the day where you get maybe 50 cents for a CD and you'd be, you know, you'd make your album, but you'd have to pay for the, all the production costs and all the promotion costs to come out of your end of the royalties and all that. And you end up in debt, you know, even if you have a, you know, like me, like you have a big selling book or CD or whatever, and you're in debt because the money and the royalties did not, you know, uh, make up for what the ad cost and the other cost you know, cost to create the thing. So you could, you know, I've, I almost have thought about making a book that was called I'm a best-selling author and I'm broke. You know, like <laughs> they'll be, you know, I, I thought I said that to someone else earlier. They said, that's a great title for Yeah, that's podcast. unreal. That's great. That might make that, I might make a separate podcast because I'm a best-selling author and I'm broke. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah. So Maybe it's, I should just switch chair tracks to that. <laughs> yeah, just pivot into that. Um, you said earlier as well that, 
you have you had any battles with publishers wanting to change any elements of your your novels no because i own part of project phoenix so they couldn't tell me what to do but they were money leeching middlemen that i cut out and went through all that fun of having to you know buy it like uh basically sell my stake to them but also buy the rights to my books and then use that money that i got out of this whole situation and all these you know legalese nonsense to get out of the whole thing to go start my own publishing house called sky blue that also has my tech company so i've just made like an umbrella not umbrella like zombies but an umbrella corporation and <laughs> umbrella not umbrella but sky blue basically covers my tech firm that i run in real life it run it also covers my book publishing stuff in the podcast so it's all like under one roof you know legally yeah so, so but i basically used what i got out of leaving phoenix with um you know basically to make sky blue so i didn't really lose any money on the you know the out you know, leaving at all you know because the money i did get out of it went straight into that and so i basically kind of washed my hands and nothing happened you know just time wasted really but that's over and um i'm i'm happier because it's just i was doing so much of the work anyway that i didn't feel like the other you know partners were making you know enough effort or really had enough you know actual input or workload that really justified what they were getting paid you know their cut really so i just cut them out and started my own thing by myself and i'll hire people if i need them and if i don't i don't and right now you know if i had the money i would hire an assistant or a publicist or somebody to handle all this stuff for me but i mean it can be brutal man it can be brutal that's why i say you know like you know, i sometimes think that i was better off before i was a bestseller because you know i yeah you're a bestseller you have the bragging rights and people want to talk to you you know at least on podcasts people on youtube didn't care at all you know they just kind of just Oh, you don't have enough subs for me to talk to you, even yeah. though you are a, you know, best-selling author. So they just didn't care. But you know, when you you get people that do podcasts and want to talk to you, which is wonderful because that's what I'm trying to do is get as many, you know, trying to really play the podcast game. I guess you know for now at least, so I can at least teach people how to do this stuff. But the big point is, it's really difficult to. Like, like if you said, okay, I'll give you 10 grand right now and you never have to write another book and say, all right, bye. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> happy to get like, out of there. Yeah, like, I'm happy. I'm, I'm done. I wrote 10. Who gives a shit? You know, Thomas Harris wrote four and he lived the rest of his life on that money. He's done too. You know, I just, think to even write one is a real testament. A lot of people, you know, would start to get one and, and never really finish it. To, to write over 10, I mean, that's a really incredible effort. It's It's... It's something you really have to be a certain type to be able to do what I did. And I mean, I'm not saying that I'm more talented than someone else and that you need talent to do it, but you really need perseverance and you really need to, you know, put your face to the grindstone and deal with all the headache that comes with it. And, you know, that's just what you got to do, man. You know, like, if you want to be a writer, you need to get in there and do it, you know, and just don't, don't, you know, dip your toe in the water really if you want to be a best-selling author jump in there because no one's going to give it to you you know it's you know there are people that work like you said they'll work on that one novel for 10 years 20 years publish it nobody bought it and then they just feel uh, you know depressed about it but it's not you that's the problem in that you know it's, it's the fact that nobody unless your name is stephen king is making big bucks in this industry even if you're a bestseller 
you're still most likely not making, you know, big, big bucks, you know, cause I've seen figures where someone's like, I made a half a million last year. And people say, what were your expenses? And they'll be like 600 grand. I'm like, well, that's still a hundred grand of the good, but look at all that money that went into ads. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, so like a ridiculous cost. amount, you know, to get you there. And I don't know if Stephen King has to spend that much money to get his stuff out there. I doubt it, but it's just the fact that, you know, it's sort of like YouTubers. Like, I guess you would say, like, if I was a YouTuber and you wanted to put a subscriber count on me right now, if like my books were, you know, YouTube subscribers, I guess you could say I'm around 50 or 60,000 subs. I'm not huge, but I'm, you know, I'm decent enough where I'm, I exist on the map, basically. Yeah. You got a nice community uh, backing you. Yeah. I got a nice, I got a decent enough following that it's all right. But, at the same time, you know, every book you put out, I think like even the uh, newest one, the K is away that I haven't put, I haven't pushed at all. You know, hasn't, I don't think it's sold a single copy so far. It's been out for like almost, you know, two or three weeks now, but I didn't push it at all either because yeah. I didn't want it to sell anything. I just wanted to, you know, even though it's kind of funny, you know, I basically wrote it as a F you to my ex who was just a, just a horrible person. Um, uh -huh that i'm still trying to get over but the point is i wrote that as sort of like an f you to her and um it came out <laughs> and it's there you know what i mean yeah it's there it, for it's, people to read it it's there for people to read it if they ever want to but i'm not gonna push them to read it because um just I, I just don't feel like it. it's all right it's not my best work by any means but then again one of my worst books in my opinion was the one was one of the best selling of all of them so yeah, sometimes yeah. you strike gold with the ones you, you don't think you will, I suppose, don't you? That's that's so true. It's insane. It really is. It's, you cannot predict what your audience is going to like. Anything that you just try to tailor to your audience is probably not going to amount to anything. It really isn't because, you know, Stephen King, I think he even said that, you know, you need to stop caring about the audience and, you know, worry about writing the story for yourself and then sharing it with them versus trying to write them a story that you think they want to hear because you don't know what they want to hear. The, the thing is you try to make the book as good as it can be in case it blows up because you don't want a book that, you know, you half-assed, you know, just go into number one or whatever. And then everyone hates it because you didn't edit it, you know? Yeah. So you, yeah. You, you have to still put that effort in there to, even if you think it's a bad product, then, you can't decide what the customer thinks about it. I wish I could, you know, I think that some of my better books are, you know, the more underappreciated ones. I think the snow white murders and dreamer don't get any amount of love that they should, but the rest of, you know, the suicide diaries and condemned get all the love. And I think they're both crap, but, um, <laughs> condemned isn't that bad and i haven't read the suicide diary since i wrote it so maybe it's a good book i don't know <laughs> that's a, that's the thing you you write the book and you put it on the shelf and then you forget about it and you remember that you hate the book because of all the pain it caused you to edit it and you know finally you read it again a couple years later and you're like I you just can't believe you wrote this and how good it came out and you're proud of it and all that and maybe i'll feel that way about the suicide diaries when i you know eventually get to reading that it again at some point but you know i thought i didn't like condemned for the longest time because it was such a simple story but you know it's basically like uh, just four people trapped in a room trying to figure out why they're there before time runs out and you know there's only like 60 or 70 pages and i listened to the audio book version of it that um that I played on my show and i was just 
I'm just kind of amazed at how well it came out. Like I didn't expect it to be that good. You know what I mean? Like, like I never thought of that book as anything special, but when I started listening to it, I started getting excited about hearing the next chapter, even though I knew the ending and I wish I didn't know the ending of my own damn book. Now. <laughs> I, I was like, you know, I know the ending and this sucks because if I was not a, if I wasn't the author, then I would really love something like this book. Yeah. You know, if I didn't know the ending, if I wasn't the one that wrote all this stuff, you know, just sometimes you get like that. And, you know, just like when I look at my first book, you know, I open it and I'll read the first few pages and I just get this wash of all these wonderful memories of just different scenes and stuff that happened later. And, you know, I still think my first book I published was the best one. I don't think the, I mean, at the same time as, you know, your first is always your best, I guess. But, um, you know, I think if I read all, I think I'm proud of all my books at the end of the day. If I read them again, I think I'd love all of them, you know, even with their small problems here and there, I'm sure that they all have, but just, I don't know. It feels weird reading your own work again after that. You know what I mean? It would just feel kind of weird to admire your own painting kind of. Yeah, well, it's definitely something that I've picked up doing the podcasting stuff is it is a, a weird feeling initially listening back to yourself and you, you know where the conversation's going but you're still sort of you know you're really invested if you know what i mean and that's i think that's a credit that you know you've done some good work and i think that's yeah. you know i think it's a really something that really fits the theme of, of it, my show really well is that it's not perfect you know normal people aren't perfect and mm -hmm. the show isn't perfect as well there will be slip-ups here and there but i think that lends to the the authenticity of it you're right. I mean, you're right. Because after I started, the thing was, I've always, I've done podcasts for years, but you know, nothing like this where I was actually segmented and planned and, you know, actually had, you know, bullet point, not even bullet points, but like sort of formatting, like I would have a one particular topic and then it would all be formatted. You know, I never had that sort of, you know, thing to the show before. And it's just, you know, the formatting does help a lot. And I get what you mean, man. It's just, you, you just add it to stuff, add it to stuff, and you eventually just start hating your own work, and then you listen to it later, and it's um, it's terrible. There was a video I was watching, and I think it was, I forgot if it was Done done is Better Than Perfect or what it, the uh, title was of the episode, but the guy basically said, you know, you when you're, you know, you write a book, and you try to start the book, and then you start trying to start with the perfect paragraph or the perfect this, that, or the other, and you know, during the process of making it, you think, you know, well, that was a piece of junk or whatever. And then you go back a few months later and watch it again. And you say, hey, that was pretty good. And, you know, you feel different about it when you have some distance. The thing was, when I started listening to actual podcasts, which I should have done before, I admit it, I'm, I'm a screw up. I don't study <laughs> the field. I just, I just, I'm one of these type of guys that just jumps in head first, screws up really bad, then eventually listens to everybody else. No, I like um, it. You've got to, that's where the uniqueness comes from. I, I think, you know, I think if you listen to a lot of other people, you tend to lose a bit of your uniqueness because you're trying yeah. to, you know, I say, oh, this really, this works really well for this person. So I'll add a bit of that. And you start pinching segments from and ideas from a lot of other people. And all of a sudden you don't have your own organic show. If you just dive straight in and you think, you know, right, I've got to do this on my own and I'm going to have to figure it out and it's going to be me. I think it comes off a lot more personal and, and unique. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing is, you know, I was so worried about every breathing noise, every um, uh, all that stuff. But when you listen to a podcast, I mean, people 
are a lot more natural than I expected. Maybe they're more comfortable. Maybe it was because I was starting a new podcast and I hadn't done it in a couple of years. Well, I mean, really even longer than that, like three, like I think last podcast of the actual podcast that was made like this was 2016. So it's been five years since I even thought about doing a podcast. So, but I think I'm a lot more natural now, like in the newer episodes, I feel like I'm more comfortable, more, um, not, I wouldn't say that I'm still not micro editing everything, but at the same time, I feel like I can talk without it being like, you know, constant pauses to make sure I don't screw my words up. Like I was in the earlier episodes. I feel like I'm actually finally getting comfortable because that's when you hear that with these bigger guys in the genres, if you watch, you know, listen to any other podcast, it seems like they're really relaxed and it's just, they don't really they may be worried about it, but you can't tell they're worried about it. You know what I mean? It just sounds so clean and natural. Like they're just a couple of friends getting together and, you know, talking or whatever. And just, just, they leave in all the screw ups. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely the sort of vibe that I like to, to go for. Um, and that I like to listen to personally as well is something that, you know, if you, you, you're driving home in your car, you can just chuck it on and, it's sort of an easy listen, you know what I mean? If you're just around the house doing some cleaning, it's not something that you really have to sit down and expect an absolute 10 out of 10 perfection thing from. You know that it's really organic and it's just sort of like dropping your ear in on a couple of friends having a conversation or something like that. So you've written over 10 books, eight bestsellers. Can you have a chat about what the feeling was like when you got that first number one bestseller? I don't think I felt anything. I mean, I really sort don't. of anticlimactic. It was just really anticlimactic. It was like, oh, hey, hey, we hit number one, and I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah, sort of a what now moment. What next? Yeah, like a what now sort of moment because, you know, I guess it was I was so used to being a failure that when I finally got some success, I just didn't know how to react to it. Yeah, is that was was that goal something that when you started to write? Uh, your stories was it something that you set out to achieve or was it something that probably more became a possibility along the way my thought was and it, you know still is to this day if a cop if a book i publish sells 10 copies i'm happy you know yeah that's great it's more for you, know, you. just 10 just 10 copies you know and you know 10 copies that aren't friends and family basically even though they don't buy it anyway but you know it's just 10 strangers pick up my book and, you know, then hopefully they'll read it and enjoy it. I think the bit, I mean, I'm, I really am happy with the way a lot of them came out, but I mean, you always hate the book or the video or the podcast while you're editing it. Like, I think the editing phase is like the hatred phase. Like, you know, it is probably the only phase of the process that makes you question, you know, your self-worth, I guess, Yeah, you yeah. know, like, what was it george rr R. martin the guy that did the game of thrones thing he said this one thing that really caught me which was uh he asked stephen king how he wrote so many books so fast because he said like there's some days you're just sit there and it's like constipation and you just you know you yeah. write a sentence and you hate the sentence and you start wondering if yeah, things like then you check your email and you start wondering if you ever had any talent maybe you should have been a plumber all that <laughs> it, maybe this whole thing was a farce and i feel that so much <laughs> yeah absolutely i well, feel i feel like it's all a big farce and i just you know i'm just yeah i'm lying to myself saying that i'm the, the problem is you know because 
I think for a lot of, lot of the time, Phoenix wouldn't tell me what my actual sales numbers were. So they would tell you, tell me, oh yeah, you hit the number one spot. And I just wouldn't believe it. I got the numbers now, which proved that I did. But at the same time, it's, it's sort of like, you know, I still feel like, you know, yeah, I sold over 16,000 copies of the first book total, you know, but it wasn't a million like JK Rowling or Stephen King. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I agree. But it's, it's also really important as well that um, you've been able to be happy with the work you've done. And it would be very easy to compare yourself to those massive authors that have broke into the mainstream. So I don't think that that's a correct statement at all. I think I do base myself <laughs> on being Stephen King at some point. You've obviously written a lot in horror. Was horror something that you were always interested and drawn into as a child as well? Or is it something that you sort of had to force yourself to get into? Because I know it can be fairly, you know, it's, it can be quite polarizing for some people. Some people absolutely can't stand the thought of going to a horror movie and then other people are fanatical about it. So was it something that you were always interested in? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up around it because when I was, you know, like I told you before we started recording, I'm 32, so I was born in 1989. And, you know, when I was a kid, you know, horror made this huge resurgence in pop culture, you know, with Scream came out. And then, you know, they every every summer, you know, every, you know, October, they would have some big new sort of horror movie come out. And it was just kind of everyone was surrounded by it. Because if you think about it, you know, in that time period, you had Scream, you know, one through three came out around my you know childhood and you had. You know, I know what you did last summer, urban legend movies, um, you know, new Halloween H2O came out in 98. And, you know, Are You Afraid of the Dark was a huge thing, you know, on Nickelodeon. Goosebumps was a big thing. You know, Tales from the Crypt was coming around. They're getting really big then. So, I mean, everything was like the 90s really was a horror decade, you know, in the early 2000s, too, because, you know, it really was horror really had a heavy hand in pop culture from like 19 the 80s until like recent day really where it's kind of died off again but you know it's still doing well but i mean it's just i was always around it was always there you know the first movie uh i think the first radar movie i saw was con air which i still like that movie even though it's cheesy but, action, <laughs> but I, I still love that movie um i still think it's a great action movie and then the second one was scream i think and I don't know. I keep telling that story, but I don't know if that's true or not. It, it might, I might have had something in between that, but I think I know we'll I roll with Scream. It. <laughs> we'll just roll with it. Yeah, yeah we'll I think Scream it. was the first horror movie I saw. But, you know, when I was growing up, I was a Nickelodeon fanatic. Oh, man, I love Nickelodeon. And I was just huge into all of that stuff. And, you know, Are You Afraid of the Dark really was just, you know, massive back then to me. And one of the, like when they really hit, you know, when they hit, it hit hard. Like, you know, the Captured Souls was such a great story and, you know, something I would have written. And then this Tale of the Super Specs is incredible. That's another great story they wrote uh, that's really original. And I really love that sort of story. There's so many episodes that really, I think, would be, you know, more or less, you know, inspiration for books I'd write. You know, they're that good. Yeah. So you've, it's, you sort of mentioned that you uh, grew up, yeah, when horror made that real resurgence. I mean, you listed some iconic horror films and just films in general in that, in that list that you gave there as well. Is there one film or TV show or novel in particular that sparked your interest and said, okay, this is what's going to make me go get into, into writing horror stories? Probably Scream. 
yeah, it was that first initial experience that really set you off. Yeah, I mean, it was just horror was everywhere. I mean, it was really, you could not escape horror movies because they became the Marvel movies of my childhood. I mean, they were everywhere. Like, there were so many of them, like, and people would always be, you know, talking about all these crazy scenes from horror movies and just, you know, oh, oh my God, there's this one spot in Final Destination and something like that. You know, you just, people would just go crazy for it, you know, and that you just see that as a kid and you really get into it. But I don't really, don't know if I'm a horror author. I've always had that struggle of thinking if I'm a horror author or not, because none of my stuff scares me. Um, it, <laughs> you've, it just grown, you've grown intolerant of it. I think of myself more as a psychological thriller sort of novelist than a horror novelist. Cause you know, I, I would say that I'm more Jacob's ladder than, uh, or silent Hill than, you know, um, Jason or Michael or Freddie sort of horror, you know, where it's, you know, a monster that's chasing you or, you know, someone's some psycho with the knife is coming to get you. I'm more of, um, adventure sort of like I wanted to blend for the most part, like final fantasy seven and silent Hill one and two like that same sort of dark, deep storytelling with, you know, the expansion of, you know, a full sort of novel that, you know, traverses the entire worlds and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, when I was doing my background research for this episode, I read a few of the ideas that you've had for your novels, just for anyone that hasn't heard them. There's uh, detectives who go back in time and solve historical crimes as you yeah. said earlier groups of people waking up handcuffed with with hours to live um that's condemned yeah how do you, they are such <clears throat> unique ideas what what does your idea generation process sort of look like it really is difficult because you know the first one you're talking about is under a morning star which is kind of time traveling cop mixed but it's just it's a you got to read that one to understand it. That's one so hard to pin down. Yeah. Um, which is, that's my first one. So if anyone ever wants to read my books, read under a morning star first, it's probably my favorite. Um, it was my first it was my favorite. And I really put a lot into it. Like, um, just, I kind of almost threw everything I possibly knew could just try to make the ultimate horror novel. So, I mean, I think it still is one of the best horror novels ever written. You know, the, against all my other stuff, I think Under Morning Star is just far ahead. But I don't really know. It's like sort of like you ask an author where he gets his ideas, you know. And I think it was Harlan Ellison says there's a little, you know, idea shop over there in the Bronx that you can go buy some ideas <laughs> from. But I really don't know. It's like we I don't think we know. It's sort of like there's something inside of us that, you know, you have these ideas that will stick with you and those are the ones i think you should really stick with or if there if there's a story or a concept that keeps you know coming up in your brain you know maybe there's something there but you know there are plenty of times where you can come up with the concept started and it just falls flat and just your brain just does not pick it up and some books you can start it and you just keep writing and writing and can't get enough of it and it just comes out automatically you know just like you get diarrhea of the hands i guess <laughs> i guess it's the best way thing. to put it yeah i think that's the best analogy like I, I really like that constipation analogy george R. R. martin said that you know sometimes you sit down and you can't even write a sentence and you know like versus stephen king who can just sit down and just you know have diarrhea of the mouth and a book comes out in a few months which I've had happen to me, you know, I think the Snow White Murders, which is 350, no, 400 pages. 
I think I wrote the first draft in like two or three weeks. Yeah, wow. Sitting there really just flew through it because there's some books that just come out. They're just already made, but you're just recording the tape, you know. Yeah. And there's other books where you'll just fight tooth and nail like Dreamer, where you just just you really you know this is great and it was great. And it was my personal favorite, and it was the hardest one to write, probably. And you you just write and write and write, and you really had to force yourself. But I think the best ones are the ones that come naturally. Like the Suicide Diaries, I think I wrote that in like three days. You know, just yeah, uh, wow. I think I that's I, incredible. I think I just I think I just sat down and wrote like seventy pages in the first night and just got through it. But and there's some books where you'll sit down and you won't get five pages out if you're lucky, and some books you'll flat through 50 and be like oh my god i actually got that much done yeah you know it's... there's some that happened with that and you know the ones that do like that i would say were uh the suicide diaries k is away nuke your brain those three really kind of flew off the page they didn't take long at all snow white murders too under morning star took forever that was four months even that's probably that's forever for me four months it took to write under morning star um a lot of that was research dreamer took almost two damn years it it was really a struggle to write dreamer and that was my hardest book to write and all of the other sort of little shorter ones you know ghostwriter murders uh harvest of children condemned and suicide diaries they all took about two weeks to write and about a week or so to edit then about a week to publish so they could all be done in a month but you know, you really had to put your face to the grindstone to write that all that because you know, hundred page, hundred twenty pages is a lot longer than you think it is. Oh, absolutely, and, uh, it's a lot longer than you really think it is. We've ch- chatted today about different challenges and sort of the processes that it takes to publish an novel. I mean, you've plus uh, you've published over ten of them, so you're clearly an expert in the in the area. What would you say? to anyone who's potentially interested in breaking into that field you know why maybe should they work in the horror space or how can they land in a space that works for them personally number one if you want money don't (laughs) that's that's first that should learn that if you want money listen to me even though i'm a bestseller i'm eight time bestseller i'm broke I am broke. So do it more for the personal gain. Do it for the personal period. If you want money, you want fame, you want women, do something else. You're not going to get any of it. Just, I don't care how big you are. Just, I, I don't think that people have, you know, Stephen King have flocks of hot girls running out <laughs> at any point in his life, probably. Maybe you need to go in a different field if you're interested in that outcome. If you want that outcome, go be a YouTuber or a musician or do something sexy. Writing is not <laughs> sexy. Oh, Apparently not anyway. I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, the thing is, writers are almost sort of like anonymous because if I let's bring up someone like um Clyde Barker. Do you know what Clyde Barker looks like? I don't know, so it serves your Neither point well. I. Neither do I. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote Hellraiser. He was one of the biggest you know, most influential horror authors of all time. No one knows. I don't know what he looks like. I wouldn't be able to spot Clive Barker in the street. Do you appreciate that anonymity of being able to walk down the street and just go about your business without? Yeah, it's kind yeah. of nice. I mean, at the same time, I would love to have like a line of goth chicks out my door, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's sort of like that anonymity really does make it kind of nice for you. Don't get interrupting, but I'm very kind of not even shy either. I kind of just sort of block out everything around me and just try to get in and get out of places. I don't really try to sit and have long conversations with anyone in real life, you know, very often. Cause I kind of, 
I got so many, like what I always said, I got so many pies flying at me and I don't know which one to duck from half the time. But it's just, I, I really have to allocate, you know, my time as, you know, concisely as possible. Like there's not much room for flexibility. You know, it's just always a million things going on when you run, you know, two companies and a podcast. So yeah, no, it sounds like you're an extremely busy person. So you've definitely got to uh, really pick and choose what you, what you care about and what you dedicate your time to. Yeah. Well, it's been great to have a chat to you today, mate. It's been a real uh, learning experience for me as well. You know, I didn't know much about uh, the horror, thriller, psychological genre before we had a chat. So, it's, and you know, writing texts in general. So, it's um, it's a big part of the show as well for for me and the listeners to really broaden the horizons and um, you know, talk to people that you probably never may have talked to just in the street or anything like that. So, yeah, it's been a real yeah, pleasure sure. to talk to you. Yeah, man, I appreciate you letting me on. No, no dramas, man. I've got um. A few questions that I ask everyone that comes on the show. Uh, I think okay. it's a great idea to get a bit of, um, you know, I love hearing the, re- the varied responses in answers. I think it gives a lot about people's perspectives on their lives. So, what is the most amazing thing that you'd say you've ever witnessed in your life? I have no idea. <laughs> That's a very broad question. <laughs> I've seen so many insane things in my life. I guess the most ins- most incredible thing I've seen recently, at least, I don't know, for some reason, I just have that spinning seal in the zoo in my brain. So there's, no, there's no need to be upset thing with like the whistle song where he's just yeah. like he's asleep sitting up in the water. For some reason, all I'm seeing is a spinning seal. So I guess him. That's great. That's awesome. Oh, that's <laughs> that's he's unreal. The most amazing. Oh, that's incredible. That's exactly the sort of variety that that is so amazing amongst amongst normal people that come on. Um, the next question that I've got is another big one as well. What do you think about? I'm very big on the whole uh, life simulation theory. You know, are we just uh, you know, little sims in a game or are we, you know, being controlled by some big simulation? I wonder what you think about that. I think that that is a, an idea and I'm not saying it's wrong or right, but, you know, because if you look at, you know, I'm a Christian, we're not going to go too far in that because I doubt this is, you know, so anyone wants to hear a sermon, but, you know, they do say in the Bible that there is predestination at think i don't know i think certain sects of christianity believe in uh predestination so i'm pretty sure that means that if there is predestination you pretty much are living in a sim that there is a certain you know parameters and an ending to your life in one way or another you know like yeah. uh but at the same time i feel like if it was a sim that the the god that is controlling the box is we do a lot more cruel things, you know, like a lot, a lot more stuff that had absolutely no reason to it. Like, you know, I don't see any, you know, people drowning in their pools because someone took the ladder away or <laughs> out of a room or, you know, stuff like that. I don't see any of that sort of stuff going on. So I don't know about the cemetery, but I mean, it's possible, you know, you never know, but I think that there is something out there that, you know, is watching over us and has some type of, um, intelligent being out there that has rather put us here or you know maybe put us all together you know on this planet together just to see what happens or like the south park theory of earth is just a big reality show. yeah yeah you know that's possible too but i i just my big thing is just to wrap this question up at least is i think that the idea that 
there's nothing out there like you know atheism that it's like you know you die and that's it and there's everything's meaningless and you know that's it you just rot in the ground i think that's just such a short-sighted thought process because you don't know what's out there like we don't even know what's past our solar system really you know we could literally just be living in like a, in a snow globe on some guy's shelf like some you know monster's shelf or something we don't know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, i would even take that theory over there's nothing out there yeah no well, it's again it's exactly why i ask so many people these different sorts of questions you get some really amazing drawn out responses just like you've given so thanks for that really amazing response it's yeah. um it's exactly the sort of thing we, we're after uh the last one that i've got is i'm very big that normal people are really incredible everyday people have really incredible short stories that they can share with other people um you know i i want to ask you what do you think is so great just about average everyday people i think the thing is that and i've always thought this that every household in a town has its own story that could probably fill up you know 10 to 20 novels at least you know and this is every little house that you pass by and every person you pass in the street you know they they've had as complicated or as long or as sordid of a life as you have because you know you see these people you know whether they you know based on all you can really see is what they look like but you know they may have a really long story and that's really why i wrote kia which is k's away because I actually met with this man and I'm not going to say his name, but his, um, he was, a, he was, a, I think he was 82 and he came in my shop and we sat there for about two, two or two and a half hours. And he basically gave me just like a, a segment of his life, which is a very short segment in the fifties when he was in the cold war, not the cold war, the, the, uh, Korea, I think it was really, I think it was Korea. Um, he was in the Korean war and like, he told me these stories from that war and, you know, his time during that, you know, the time period and how things were so much different and everything. And this small amount of time that may have been five to 10 years could have filled multiple novels, you know? And you really think this is just one guy that's not famous. He's not so, even if you looked him up in the phone book, you probably wouldn't see him, you know, and this one person, that's lived 82 right now has lived that type of life with that much going on that you really don't know you know you, you don't know if um you just don't know you just see people and you just all you can really see is the outside but they may have you know the most incredible story in the world to tell but you just don't know it yet so i mean it's really like you said people you know it's it's crazy and that's why i think it's great these podcasts that you know, try to bring on random people that aren't, you know, necessarily famous or rich, because I think the people that aren't necessarily rich and famous probably have a lot more interesting lives than I do, you know, even though I'm not rich or famous, but I think, you know, there's plenty of stories out there and people like to hear sto stories like that, I think. So, I, you know, I, there's this one video, I'll send you a link to it. It was uh, this guy named Melvin, and I'm, I don't know if he's still alive or not. The interview took place in 89. But uh, 1989, and he was talking about the 50s when he was living outside of D.C., and he was in his 20s, and it just was like the most captivating story I ever heard of what it was like, you know, being that age and that time period and that location. And just I could listen to the guy for like, you know, days just listening to his story and, you know, his viewpoint and 
how things were back then versus now. It's just it was incredible. I love that stuff. So yeah, I just I know I'm rambling like crazy, but the point is I think everyone has I think everyone deserves to be heard. I think everyone deserves to be heard for good or bad, you know, because you never know what someone will say or what type of story you'll get out of somebody. And someone might have an amazing story like that guy who was just some random guy they interviewed for just a show. Like he wasn't anyone famous. So just like that guy. So anyway, that's, that's the point. Very long answer, but God, don't, don't apologize. That's uh, that's a really incredible response. And I think you really bang on, Uh, you know, you are right. People are so incredible and interesting and they just do it because it's their everyday life. You know what I mean? Like they just do these things and, they just live on the next day and they might never get their chance to to share their story. So that's why I'm really glad that, to give people like yourself and, and other people, random normal people as well, that to give them the chance to come on and, uh, and do exactly that and share their story. So, uh, no, that's a really incredible answer. No, so thanks for, for coming on. It's been really great to talk to you. Is there anything that you, you want to plug at all before, before we wrap up? Just go to terratracks.com slash listen if you want to listen to my show and hear my quote-unquote incredible stories, I guess, because I'm going to end up running out of writing tips at some point, maybe just tell you stories or, you know, just talk about life in general or find something to take up the first segment. But right now I'm really just trying to um, grind through it. So if you want to listen to, you know, me talk about being an author, if you want to listen to dramatized audio, or if you want to just hear me talk about Are You Afraid of the Dark, Every Friday night, 9 p.m. EST, go over to terratracks.com slash listen. That's all I got for you. Great. Perfect. That's unreal, mate. Definitely go give him a listen, guys. He's a, he's a really incredible bloke and uh, really I love chatting to him today. So definitely if you've got some time and you're interested in, in the writing space in general, go give him a listen. Uh, so, yeah, thanks thanks for coming on, man. It's been great to talk to you. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Jack was a really great guest to have on the show this week. I'm really happy with how that chat turned out. Remember, if you've liked this week's episode, there's plenty more where that came from. We post highlights of the show over on all our socials, which are linked in the show notes. While you're there, please give us a review and give all our socials a follow. It really helps us out. Thanks for tuning in, Legends. I'll see you all next week.